I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we discuss the issues surrounding polysilicon and Chinese solar panels, including challenges Biden will face as he tries to balance human rights, economic priorities, and climate change goals. We also discuss the latest on GSP and MTB renewal in Congress. Plus, we go over the most recent developments on the lumber dispute with Canada and what it means for U.S. consumers. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good morning, Trade Guys. Today, I thought we'd start off with solar panels, which is an issue that has been making headlines recently. Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee called on the Biden administration last week to block imports of Chinese solar panels, which contain polysilicon. About half the world's supply of polysilicon comes from Xinjiang, where there have been ongoing forced labor and human rights concerns. Can you guys explain what's going on here and what's important to consider, especially in terms of Biden's climate change goals? Well, look, solar panels is one of the stories of innovation over the past decade. The bottom line is they've gotten a lot less expensive. And so as a, as a way to generate renewable energy, the prices have dropped substantially, something like 80% over, over a little more than a decade. Now, this happens because of innovation, because of scale production. I'm reminded of uh, Henry Ford's Model T, which when it was introduced in uh, roughly 1909, it cost about $20,000 in today's dollars, which made it the most affordable car out there for what it delivered. But that $20,000 car became a $4,000 car by 1925, again, in today's dollars. So it was, it was the scale production and continuous innovation that drives down the prices of products such as solar panels. That's the good news. The bad news is you never get to zero on a, a product that takes physical energy, physical goods, and physical materials to make. So uh, the prices are starting to go up because materials are getting more expensive. The controversy uh, appears to be over polysilicon, which is the key uh, ingredient. Actually, silicon is is the is not rare at all. Silicon, I, after oxygen, is the second most plentiful material in the Earth's crust. So there's plenty of silicon around. It's it's tied up. It has to be processed into polysilicon, which is a chemical process. It's actually called the Siemens process, but it takes industrial chemistry to do it. Now that's that's the story. Uh, most of the produ- production of silicon chips, that is polysilicon from the element silicon. Polysilicon is produced principally in China. A quick check, eight of the top 10 producers are Chinese companies, and none of them are American companies. So the, there's, a, there's a, an issue here of, yes, you'd like not to source from, say, China or a certain region in China, but the alternatives are to not source panels at all, at least in the near term. Somebody has to build the capacity somewhere else. That's the economic dilemma, at least. Well, let me start off by pointing out that despite what our listeners may think, neither Scott nor I were around in 1925 when Henry Ford was producing Model Ts. However, I can claim the distinction of actually having driven one on more than one occasion. When I was in high school, one of the adults that I knew had one, and we used it for parades and ceremonial occasions and things like that. Uh, I'm not so old that it was in regular use, uh, but it was fun to drive. And if you knew how to do it, drive a stick, 
there it was. That was the only choice. It was like uh, Ford said about the color. You know, you could have any color you want as long as it was black. You could have any transmission you want as long as it was a stick shift. Anyway, I've looked at this from kind of a, a different point of view. It's a, one of a number of cases that illustrates some of the dilemmas that governments have in, in dealing with uh, trade policies and sort of conflicting priorities. We had a discussion the other day on Myanmar sanctions, which raised the question of, uh, on the one hand, you want to do something to show you're appalled at the coup in Myanmar and what the military is doing there. At the same time, you have to deal with the fact that the things they're going to do in, in terms of sanctions are, are most likely to cause a lot of poor people their jobs. And you know how do you square uh, that circle? We wrestle with this on the vaccine waiver, which we've talked about uh, on this show before. You don't want people to die. You want everybody to be vaccinated. But you've got companies whose intellectual property is important, and you want them to be in a position to be able to continue to innovate and invent. And invent. So priorities. In this case, same thing. On the one hand, you've got a law, Section 307 of the Trade Act of 74, that says that uh, if a product is made from forced labor, it cannot be imported. And uh, right now, uh, the Congress has been taking steps, both last year enacted and this year proposed, to, to beef up that provision and to make it more effective, in part by uh, changing the burden of proof and putting the burden of proof on the importer, uh, which has not happened yet. But it's clear there's a lot of attention being paid to the question of forced labor, mostly but not entirely in China. And uh, the, the way the law reads is that if the United States government determines that polysilicon is made, being manufactured in um, by forced labor, sanctions are required. An import ban is required. At the same time, if we do that, as Scott pointed out, since most of the producers of the product are in China, it's going to slow down for at least for a time and certainly make more expensive the installation of solar panels in the United States. So you have a climate goal, green tech, reducing emissions, getting in the way of a social or moral goal, I guess, which is stopping forced labor. Um, this is why Biden gets the big bucks. He has to make that decision. Uh, there's probably not a perfect answer here. Right. And Biden and fellow G7 nations signed on to a joint communique that called on China to, quote, respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, especially in relation to Xinjiang. So what actions should the international community take in the short term and long term? And if the U.S. were to impose sanctions on polysilicon, would there be a difference? Would that make any impact? Glad you brought that up because this is always the issue with sanctions. When they are unilateral, they almost always don't work because there are other places to go. There are other markets. If we're not going to buy Chinese polysilicon, if everybody else in the world is willing to buy it, the Chinese are just going to shift markets. And, you know, there will be a short-term dislocation because we're a big market. They'll have to replace it. But if the Europeans don't follow suit, another big market, over time, the, the Chinese will just uh, compensate and there will be a market shift. Uh, if you can multilateralize these things, then you can send a signal that actually matters. And if the Chinese discover that they have no customers or, or no significant customers, uh, that's the best chance you get of getting them to change their to change their behavior. It's a long shot anyway, I think, with China. But uh, you can guarantee not to have any success if your sanction is unilateral. Look, Bill's right. In, in this particular case, I think it's even less likely that a U.S. action would have an impact, mostly because 
China is not only the biggest producer of solar panels, they're the biggest user. There's roughly three times the installed capacity on a megawatt basis of solar panels in China than there is in the U.S. We're a distant third in, in sort of size of the market for, for solar panels. So, you know, home consu- when home consumption is a big factor, it's much easier to do nothing about, uh, about export restrictions. Once again, I think the international community will uh, find it talk is cheap, but action will result in little or nothing. Well, I'm sure there will continue to be updates that will follow, but turning now to another issue on the Hill. Senate Democrats passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act last month, which included language on GSP and MTB renewal. We discussed this a few weeks ago and considered the renewal of the programs a win-win for the U.S. Now, Democrats in the House have introduced legislation that aims to, quote, address significant shortcomings in recently passed legislation. What are your takes on the newly proposed language? Let me just take a minute to remind our listeners what these programs are. Both the Generalized System of Preferences, or GSP, and the Miscellaneous Tariff Bills, or MTB, have the function of reducing tariffs on imports to the United States. They, they have different motives, different objectives. The Generalized System of Preferences has been around a very long time, really since the 70s and sort of modern American tariff policy. And this was an, uh, a preference given to the least developed countries to help them gain access to the large American market. And GSP has been reauthorized over the years. It was probably more important back in the days when the United States had relatively high protection on light industrial goods like apparel, that there were quotas on apparel trade for a long time. And we've traded those quotas for less expensive apparel, which was a good deal for American consumers, uh, but it made the preference that programs like GSP less valuable to the least developed countries who were, who were users of them. Now, GSP is still important to the countries and in the sectors where it's meaningful. So reauthorization is always important to somebody, and it's important to the American firms who sell these products. Uh, now, the miscellaneous tariff spell, on the other hand, is geared specifically at increasing industrial competitiveness in the United States, in that in order to be part of the miscellaneous tariff bill, tariff reductions, the, the imported item has to have no U.S. source of production. So the, the way to think about that is these are tariffs charged on intermediates or raw materials, which simply add to the final uh, price of the product for American consumers. There's no protective function of the tariff because there is no domestic production. So you qualify for the programs differently and their purposes are different, but they still need Congress's attention because they change the tariff schedule. So that's what we're dealing with. And uh, there's always something to be controversial about. This one brought back memories for me since I spent 20 years up on the Hill. And it's a good example of the eternal uh, permanent friction between the House and the Senate on these things. And it reminds me of an episode when I was up there. We had worked very hard on a bill in the Senate and, and it had passed the Senate. And we then trooped over to the House to meet with the relevant committee to try to persuade them that they should take it up and pass it too. And as the meeting went on, there was a lot of uh, very, very specific, very detailed questions came up. And you could see what the House people were thinking. The House people were thinking, you know, these idiots from the Senate can't draft properly to save their lives. 
All they're interested in is, in is a press release for their senator, and they have no idea of the consequences of what they're doing. And meanwhile, we Senate types were thinking, you know, these people from the House are lost in the weeds. They can't see the forest for the trees. They have no idea how important this is, and, you know, and they're just agonizing over little details that don't matter. And it dawned on me afterwards that uh, that both sides were right in, in, a, in a sense, that there's some tr- like they say about, uh, you know, that the best comedy is where there's an, el- uh, an element of truth uh, underneath. And there's an element of truth in the stereotypes here. It is, I think, institutionally impossible for members of the House to believe that the Senate drafted anything competently. By definition, the Senate GSP and MTV bills have to be flawed. And there's also here an element of, you know, we were supposed to do it first, and they're right. These are revenue provisions, and under the Constitution, they're supposed to originate in the House. So there's a level of annoyance, sort of institutional prerogatives there. And there are some some people that felt that their particular specific considerations in the House were not adequately addressed in the Senate bill. But the bottom line, if, you know, looking at the two versions is the differences are not very great. You know, it's like between four and six on the 10-point scale. There will be tweaking and, uh, you know, they both expand the criteria for uh, GSP, for example. Uh, I think there's some areas, frankly, that I would take issue with. One is that the idea of, of layering more and more criteria on GSP eligibility, to me, is kind of problematic. The point of the program is to provide a benefit to poor countries, to allow them to grow through imports. If you start to say that you can't participate, you know, if your labor policies aren't good enough, if your environment policies aren't good enough, if your gender policies aren't good enough, what you're doing is ruling out a bunch of poor countries and a bunch of poor people. And uh, you're doing it in the name of a bunch of noble goals, but the net result is that those countries are not going to have better labor, environmental, or gender, gender policies, and they're not going to grow because they're not going to benefit from increased imports. We've seen this movie before when the Congress attempted to provide some special procedures some about 10 years ago for Pakistan, uh, and they ended up loading so many requirements onto it that I don't think it was ever used in any significant sense. That's one thing to watch out for. The other thing to watch out for on the miscellaneous tariff side is there's a flap about uh, whether or not it should apply to finished products. The point being that finished products, uh, there are finished products coming in from China that apparently are on the list of items for which tariffs would be um, eliminated. And I think some people have tried to change the purpose of this bill beyond how Scott described it. The original purpose was, you know, this is an irrelevant tax. Why pay a duty on something for which there is no domestic production? All you're doing is making the, the consumer pay more or the buyer of foreign parts and components pay more, pay more and make his product more expensive. Why bother? Well, now you've got people saying, well, if it comes from China, we ought to bother, you know, because we don't like China. At the same time, you know, the fact remains, these are limited to stuff that we don't make here. And I, I would argue, even if it's coming from China, if we don't make it here, why do we want to make it more expensive for U.S. consumers? I mean, I can understand an argument about uh, protection, competitiveness, it's subsidized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's no production, and and remember, these are all small items. There's a revenue loss cap on these things. I think it's $500,000 or something like that. So we're not talking about big tickets here. I mean, it adds up if you look at the whole bill, but item by item, this is small cheese. However, you know, they'll work all this stuff out. Uh, And I think it ends up in the bill being enacted. 
There are some members of the House that would prefer to go separately, assert their constitutional prerogative, move the bill. I think that's very difficult to do because that would mean, you know, the House would have to vote on a trade bill. And then they'd have to send it over to the Senate and the House could do it with a closed rule and prohibit amendments. The Senate can't. And I don't think there's a likelihood that the Senate this fall is going to have the time or the will to take up a separate trade bill. You know, the China bill is leaving the station. And if you want to get this done, you know, this better be on the one of the cars. The reality, I think, will probably kick in. I think Bill's right about the, the final outcome. But there's a couple of issues here that, that we'll, we'll revisit, no doubt. One is the general topic of mission creep. It's easy to do in an agency. It's easy for a company to lose focus on its core mission and to bring in other issues. And that is happening in both these cases. There's mission creep that is keeping people from focusing on why these programs existed in the first place. And they'll have to sort that out. That's that's why we have elected officials in these roles. But uh, the tension between the, the the House and Senate is another common part of our, our structure. And, and, and I think occasionally an entertaining one. I remember in my lobbyist days uh, being in a coalitions meeting and it was the meeting was chaired by then the House Majority Leader, one Tom DeLay, who was a heck of a vote counter. Flaws aside, he was really good at his job. And uh, there was a conversation in the meeting about about getting this past the enemy, meaning the House Democrats. And Mr. DeLay paused the meeting and said, excuse me, the Democrats are the opponent. The Senate is the enemy. <laughs> and it's that mentality is deep within the Congress. And, you know, jo- John Dingell said that first. And exactly the same thing. One of his staffers, he had just scored a House victory. And one of his staffers said, congratulations, Mr. Chairman, you defeated the enemy. And Dingell said exactly what DeLay said. You know, the, uh, the Republicans are not the enemy. The Senate is the enemy. Republicans are the opposition. <laughs> so life, go- life goes on, but that will probably remain unchanged. Turning to our final topic for today, we've also recently discussed the massive lumber price increase in the United States over the past few months. The price hikes are finally starting to dwindle just a little bit, which is good news for U.S. consumers, but Canada is not as happy. They've asked for a refund of billions of dollars that companies have paid to cover anti-dumping and countervailing duties. What's the latest story here? Thanks for bringing this up. It's a great topic because what you can see is, apart from the trade controversy, markets are working. And this is something I learned back in my youth in business when I had a chance to work with commodity traders. And what commodity traders always maintain is high prices lead to low prices. Because in any product or with any service or product, when prices go up, you two things happen. One is people find substitutes, and the second is producers find a way to supply the market. That's a signal to do something differently. That certainly happened with lumber. Uh, lumber, uh, sort of March 20, 2020, so a pre-pandemic futures price for a 1,000 board feet of lumber was something like $303. It shot up to over 1,600, and to drop back down to 900. Now, it's still, lumber today is still about three times what it was pre-pandemic. So markets do work, but lumber is still pricey compared to the equilibrium of a pre-pandemic world. And so that's important to home builders and home buyers, ultimately. Over on track B, we have the dispute that is older than you, Jasmine, uh, called softwood lumber, a lot older than you in this case, goes back to 81 or 82. It's it's a very long, long-standing dispute. 
Occasionally, this is a subsidies dispute um, uh, between Canada and the U.S. on softwood lumber uh, that that occasionally finds a point of settlement. It hasn't in some years, and Canada's asking to let's you know let's just call it a day and pay us back our uh, countervailing duties, and uh, we'll act like nothing happened. So that's their proposal, and uh, where it goes from here, Bill will know. Well, I just, you know, I, I agree with Scott on the economics of this. It's going to be interesting to watch. Chairman Powell is using this as an example of uh, suggesting that perhaps that he's right and that the administration is right and that these bottlenecks and blockages and shortages in, in the supply chain are, are temporary and, and passing. And as things get back to normal, some of these uh, price increases will subside. Um, I think we all hope he's right about that, because if he's not right about it, then we're going to have rising inflation. And those of you that are older than Jasmine, but as old as Scott and me, uh, remember uh, what we went through in the late uh, the late 70s and the early 80s on that score. And I think people who've been through that can explain why you don't want it to happen again. In the case of the lumber issue, though, there's a, a legal footnote that, that I'd throw in. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is an anti-dumping and, and countervailing duty issue. In other words, it's not Donald Trump deciding that the Canadians were bad people and just imposing tariffs. This is have been, I mean, this has been going on for years, and the U.S. industry has consistently demonstrated under U.S. law that uh, the lumber coming in is benefits from Canadian government subsidies. Now, the Canadian government contests that, and they've done very well with WTO and, and prevailed. But U.S. law is, is U.S. law, and it, it's sort of been fought out on two tracks. It's, you know, while it's going on at the WTO, U.S. law is, continues to be operational. Duties are assessed. The agreement that uh, was reached that produced peace for, what, about eight years or nine years from the mid-2000s up to a few years ago, what's called a suspension agreement. And that is one in which the the uh, the parties come in, and uh, the the U S party, the complainant, comes to the government and asks the government to um, suspend the uh, investigation, which means suspend the duties. And that what that then triggers is, uh, among other things, is a discussion with, uh, in this case, the Canadians, uh, to see if you know they're willing to meet a variety of conditions that would allow the uh, duties to be suspended. Uh, normally, uh, this is fancy, uh, a fancy term for a price fixing agreement, basically. Uh, we've done this with Mexican tomatoes as well. It was the same thing that what happened is the U.S. government negotiates uh, with Canada and on lumber, the Canadian lumber industry agreed to sell it at, at, with a price floor, basically. And the negotiation was over what that floor would be. The um, American industry indicated it was satisfied at the time. And as a result, the dumping or the subsidy uh, countervailing duties uh, went away because there was a price floor. You know, as a legal matter, though, the investigation doesn't go away. The case doesn't go away. The duties are suspended. That's why it's called a suspension agreement. And what that means is that the Americans can come back at any time and ask the government to resume the investigation and resume the duties. That means that the government has to investigate uh, and decide if there are still subsidies uh, and the ITC has to decide if there's still injury. But if they do that, then it goes back right on the books and the duties go back into place. That's what happened. It's what happened with tomatoes. Uh, it's what happened with lumber. And if you ask uh, now, why can't we go back and cut another, a new deal? 
The answer is we can cut a new deal, but under the law, the uh, U.S. industry has to ask for that. They were the petitioner here. They've got the countervailing duties in place. If they want the government to suspend that and negotiate, they can request it. But if they don't, things go on like they're going on. And uh, the law never, never bothers to ask how home buyers or home builders who would probably take the libertarian point of view in this particular debate, which is if Canadian taxpayers want to subsidize and make lumber exported to the United States cheaper, we should let them. <laughs> but but that's not part of this equation. And, and it's, uh, it's not part of the law. This gets debated periodically. There are people who's, who have argued, the libertarian view has been, we ought to be able to, in assessing duties, we ought to be able to take into account the consumer impact. And if there's an adverse consumer impact, that should be a reason for the government either not to impose the duty or to impose a lower one. Congress has never approved that, and the law does not permit that. So it may or may not be a good idea, but it's not happening. Libertarians of the world unite. Uh, all, you, all you have to lose is high lumber prices. I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> well, as always, I learned a lot from both of you. Thanks for a great discussion today and looking forward to our next episode. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.